0: Do you know the significance of the number 86400? No? We'll let Robert Bell, the CEO and co-founder of a neobank called 86400, tell you.
1: And we just felt that uh, it was very different. It's not, not a typical name for a bank. Um, although brands never have name until you actually create a great product, 86400 does actually mean something. It's the number of seconds in a day. And that's, that's what we're working towards. You know, How do we help Australians take control of their money every second, every minute of every day?
0: Robert Bell is the guest on this episode of People Building Businesses, and you're about to learn how Robert and his team have built a digital bank. 86400's story is really interesting, and so is Rob's. He was previously the CEO of ANZ Bank Fiji in ANZ Japan, so he has lots to say on leadership. That also gives him a unique angle on the traditional bank versus challenger bank scenario we're seeing at the moment. There's also some very insightful thoughts on how COVID will impact banking going forward. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about YB Ventures. We have innovation hubs in Melbourne and Sydney, where we help startups to scale, scale scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can check out everything we do at YBADVentures.com. Okay, you're here to listen to Robert Bell. Let's get into it.
2: Maybe we'll start with a bit of your background, Rob. Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I grew up in Hobart in Tasmania and uh, moved in high school to Melbourne. And uh, Melbourne was home, but um, have lived uh, in a number of different places since.
2: What uh, compelled you to move from Hobart to Melbourne? I mean, you're, you're trading beautiful, uh, sunny skies for uh, the busy city.
1: Um, look, uh, moved with the, basically grew up, in, grew up in Launceston, moved with the family uh, to Melbourne, uh, and Melbourne became home. Uh, we also lived in Darwin for a little while as a, as a, as a kid. Um, and then since then, of course, um, you know, I've been very lucky to live in different places around the world, including uh, the Pacific in, uh, in Fiji and uh, Tokyo in Japan. So
2: growing up, did you always know that you would one day end up as an entrepreneur? Was this the career path you envisioned
1: for yourself? Um, look, I, you know, people ask me about career path all the time. And, you know, I've never been one that's good at planning. A career path um, and when people ask me for advice I think they get um, extremely disappointed when I talk about career planning and my only kind of advice and my only ethos on this is you know enjoy what you do do a really 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 good job of what you do and then the rest kind of takes care of itself and that's that's been the case for me I have always worked though um, you know I've always found a good work ethic from my from my parents uh, you know I worked at school I worked when I was a student you know, I've always found uh, jobs and, and way of earning income uh, and always enjoyed it as well. So um, that that background is, is very much there. But in terms of being an entrepreneur or working in a startup, it's not something I expected to do, no. And you studied business at Swinburne, is that right? That's correct. Um, I did a Bachelor of Business. Um, my colleagues will laugh at me because I've been in banking for so long, but uh, I actually did a... Um, a, a major in marketing and uh, that, that surprises um, some of my colleagues who think of me more as a, a banker than a than a marketer. And now as the CEO of a fintech company
2: as well so that's an interesting background. Correct, <laughs> correct. So at some point you ended up in uh, various senior, uh, senior leadership roles at ANZ Bank but before that what happened after graduation um, all the way up to your ANZ days? Um,
1: well we're looking back uh, quite a few years now but that's right Look, when I was at university, um, I spent a lot of time actually working uh, at Just Genes. Um, and in fact, I think I spent more time uh, working than I did actual studying. Uh, and then the rest of the time was spent on the, on the committee of the windsurfing club and, and various other uh, activities. Um, and so I actually did university, a three-year university degree over four years. I took, took a year off in the middle, worked full-time, traveled, did all that. When I came back, um, I really sort of got into study. The interesting for me is that when I actually left university, the first job I got was uh, actually as a graduate at uh, Ford Motor Company. Interesting. Um, There was 40 graduates appointed that year, 40 graduates started. 38 of them were engineers and two of us were from a marketing uh, business background. so we were very much not the the right fit uh, at Ford Motor Company in uh, Broad Meadows, which of course sadly is no longer there. What was your experience like being in in Ford? Uh, it was very American. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> drive a long way to get there, and uh, to be honest, it wasn't the right. it wasn't the right fit for me. Um, and uh, I actually uh, left to take on another opportunity after only a, a short period of time. Um, but I actually spent, you know, post-university, post, post university, my first kind of long-term job was actually at CSL, which is a pharmaceutical company. Um, fantastic, you know, amazing Australian success story. Uh, got to work uh, in sales and, and product management, spent five years there um, under the, the former CEO, now current CEO. Um, uh, chairman in Brian McNamee, um, you know, really great experience. Five years in in, in drugs and pharmaceuticals, uh, and then I moved over to to banking, joining uh, joining ANZ. And everyone at ANZ said to me, "Well, how could someone who's only worked in pharmaceuticals and drugs work in banking?" Um, but everyone at uh, at CSL said, "How can someone with a marketing and products background, you know, work in uh, in drugs without any medical background?" So you know, I've always grabbed opportunities and enjoyed learning and doing different things. So at some point in ANZ, you became the CEO
2: of ANZ Fiji, which uh, brought you there and the CEO of ANZ Japan. How does someone with, I'll, I'll repeat the question your colleagues ask you, how does someone with an automotive background go from that to a drug company to then the CEO of a division of a bank?
1: Well, I think um, saying that I have an automotive background would be a, a big stretch of the imagination, given I was only at Ford Motor Company for a very short period of time. Um, look, you know, look, I had lots of different opportunities at, uh, at ANZ, lots of different roles, and I really adopted that philosophy of just do a really, really good job uh, in your role, be curious about all the other roles around you, offer to help in those, and then those opportunities um, progressed. I actually was, uh, my, my first big leadership role was running the, the margin lending business at, uh, at ANZ. I had a great team. It was just a fantastic opportunity. We're doing, doing really well. Um, and I had a phone call um, from, from someone saying, hey, I've just I've recommended you have a chat to the current chief of staff of, of ANZ because um, your name came up as a possible chief of staff for, uh, for John McFarlane. And I just said, look, well, I just thought, that's ridiculous. Why would I go and do that? Why, why would I go and do that role uh, when I've got this great general management role? Um, but I thought I would just do the polite thing and go and have a, go and have a chat to... Uh, it was actually Sally Capp, who's now the, the Lord Mayor of um, uh, of Melbourne. Um, so I went and had a chat to Sally and said, look, I'm not really interested in this role, but I just politely, I just you know wanted to come and say hello. Um, and an hour and a half later, I walked out of her office thinking, wow, I really want that opportunity. That opportunity to to see ANZ how it works from top to bottom, to be involved with the board, to be involved with the executive, um, you know, to work closely with the chairman. And so, you know, just by being curious, that opportunity presented itself. You know, I did that job for a number of years, and that gave me the opportunity then to to step into my first CEO role, uh, which was uh, uh, the CEO of ANZ uh, Fiji in the Pacific. What do you think uh, Sally saw in you that enabled you to, to step into that role? Uh, look, I have no idea. She's a very busy person. I hope to track her down at some point and uh, <laughs> uh, ask her. But look, I think it was really the, it, it, was, it was John McFarlane who, who obviously did the interview and um, you know, gave me a great opportunity. It was a, it's a 24-7, seven-day-a-week, absolutely full-on job as anyone who've done those sort of chief of staff roles uh, would know. Um, huge huge toll on you but just an incredible learning opportunity and you know i thoroughly enjoyed it um worked really hard you know i feel like i had a lot of value but i learned an incredible amount at the same time so could you quickly encapsulate
2: your time leading ans at fiji and ans at japan uh, maybe a good place to start is what were some expectations you had going into the role uh and the reality that subsequently hit you as you stepped into the role
1: Look, um, I didn't go with um, massive expectations for, for either country, other than to know that, you know, there will be a big challenge in terms of, uh, you know, economic environment, um, cultural differences. Um, you know, being very young in, in markets where, you know, age is actually really important, more so than Australia in, in the Pacific and in Japan. So I went um, very open minded about it. I also went extremely prepared. Um, so I spent an enormous amount of time, you know, kind of doing research on, on people and uh, language and culture and, and, and business. And so I was very, very well prepared. But you can never be entirely prepared. Um, I started in the, in the Pacific uh, and literally uh, less than four weeks in, there was a, a military coup. And so everyone that I had met in, in government, uh, in government institutions was effectively removed. And I had to deal with a whole bunch of new people. Um, so you can never really prepare for that. Um, spent a lot of time on, on the leadership team, um, getting to know the business, getting involved in the community there. Um, and it was a really rewarding, um, really rewarding role, um, really challenging times, but, uh, you know, very fond memories of the Pacific, Try to get back to Fiji uh, as, as often as I can. Unfortunately, I haven't been for a little while now, but um, still have many great friends and connections there. I don't think a lot
2: of people can say that they've lived through a military coup. So that's definitely uh, an interesting part of your resume. That's for sure. Uh, so what happened after ANZ? You became the CEO of Big Sky Building Society, it seems. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that one?
1: Yeah, so look, I, I did uh, a number of years in the Pacific. I also had the opportunity of running uh, ANZ in Japan, uh, which was a you know complete contrast to uh, to the Pacific. Um, you know very different economies, very different cultures, um, and again, you know different language and uh, and different things there. when I returned to australia, um, you know i 'd been with ANZ for nearly fifteen years. Um, I really felt like a change i'd really thrived on you know having the best of both worlds, you know running my own uh, bank, although it was part of the the ANZ network and you had that uh, that extra responsibility and that fallback, um, I really found that you know, being autonomous and, and growing businesses was what I was really want to do. So when I came back to Australia into the big machine that is um, the bank here, um, it just felt like the right time to, to move. Uh, and so the opportunity to join um, Big Sky Building Society, which is part of Australian Unity Group, um, and to take on a transformation role of, um, of that building society uh, was something that I, you know, it was a great opportunity and I really enjoyed it. Um, during that process, I got to know uh Cuscale. So Cuscale are the leading payments company, independent payments company in Australia. It's a name that people don't really know because it sits behind a lot of the competitors in the market. It provides payment rails and fraud services and technology for, for many smaller banks and new entrants into the market. So I got to know them because they were providing a lot of the the product and support that we needed at Big Sky. Um, and the opportunity came up to join them. Um, to learn a lot more about technology and get really deep into technology. Um, So I I moved to Sydney to join Cuscale and then, you know, within 12 months I was involved in the business case for 86400 um, with Cuscale being the the major uh, shareholder and the initiative of the idea of 86400. Um, So I got involved in the business case and um, uh, within 12 months became the inaugural uh, CEO and that was... Two and a half, almost three
2: ago. Amazing. And could you just walk us through what the story was uh, that really catalyzed 86400 out of Cusco? Was there a particular pain point that Cusco kind
1: of came up against that inspired it, or what's the story there? Look, Cusco has actually been involved in innovation and technology for a long time, um, for, actually for many years, but in more recent times, um, It was one of the early participants of the new payments platform. Um, It connected over 40 different banks to Apple Pay before most of the major banks had even done that. Uh, It connected, I think about 40 different banks uh, to the new payments platform before any of the the big banks had gone live. So it had this kind of history of of technology. Uh, It had a really good perspective on what's happening globally. Um, It saw technology changing um, and 86400 CEO, Brian Parker, and uh, Cusco's managing director, Craig Kennedy, had done a lot of work about what's happening around the world. Um, They recognised there was a great opportunity um, to use technology to be more efficient, to provide better product and better service to customers. But they also recognised that while they had lots of skills, they didn't have retail banking skills. And for this to be successful, they needed to set up a separate business. Um, And so 86400 was, was formed as a as a separate um, business, separate premises, separate team, separate board, uh, to Cuscal. Initially, with Cuscal as the the 100% shareholder, and over time, we've introduced new shareholders that uh, have diluted Cuscal down. They're still a major shareholder of uh, 86400.
2: Rob, I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to wonder what exactly 86400 stands for. And there is a particular story to the name, so could
1: you just... Shed some light on that as well. Uh, be my absolute pleasure to. Um, <laughs> there was a meeting uh, of a number of the early team, uh, only half a dozen, and we were looking at really what is the, what are we trying to achieve with 86400? And the very early idea was how do we use the latest technology and use it 24. 24- hours a day, you know, every day of the week. How, how, could, how do we use that technology to help Australians take control of their money, to look at their money so they don't have to constantly do that? Uh, and one of the developers, when I think it's, it's prompt, the technology company, the name came from one of our engineers, said, oh, 86400. Uh, we, know, we all went, oh, Dr. Google, um, what does that mean? Uh, and 86400 is the number of seconds in a day. And we just felt that uh, it was very different. It's not, not the typical name for a bank. Um, although brands never have name until you actually create a great product, 86400 does actually mean something. It's the number of seconds in a day and that's, that's what we're working towards. You know, how do we help Australians take control of their money every second, every minute of every day?
2: And could you give us a short elevator pitch of what 86400
1: is all about? Well, look, we, we actually surprise people by constantly saying that Australia doesn't need another bank if it's gonna be exactly the same as all the other banks in the marketplace. And so we set out to create a very, very different bank. Uh, and that bank has a, a really clear purpose. How do we help Australians take control of their money? Because money has become stressful. Uh, it's become complicated too. You know, Most people bank with more than one bank now. Uh, we have more money coming in and out of our accounts every day of the week that we don't see than we've ever had before and we tap our phones and we tap our cards and make more purchases in a day than we've ever done before. All those things leave customers feeling not in control of their money, uh, frustrated and even stressed at times. And so everything that we've built using the latest technology is designed around how do we help Australians take control of their money? And for those who've tried this already, they will see a bunch of examples of that. You know, it's right from day one, right from the first experience, you know, download the app and become a customer in under two minutes. Someone like yourself could probably do it in a minute because I'm sure you're fast with your your, your thumbs and fingers. Um, so that's just a very different experience. Um, the fact that we allow customers to connect accounts with other banks and see their balances of their big banks or their small banks in the 86-400, that immediately helps customers take control of their money. Um, the fact that we allow customers, or we actually give them insights. We, we predict Based on their history, we predict what their bills are going to be in the future and when they're coming up. So we can remind them of them. Um, you know, we can remind you, Jason, that you know, your Netflix bill is due in four days' time, your gym membership is due in 10 days time, and you've been paying it for 12 months and you haven't been for nine. So you probably should think about, you know, saving four or five hundred dollars a year by canceling it. So that's the sort of things that we're doing that are just banks, you know, banks have never done this. This is really new territory in terms of what we're doing.
2: When you're talking through what 8600 offers, it, it kind of seems like a very, a very common sense-based approach to money and to be able to help customers understand their money better. Uh, why do you think banks have not done this to date? It seems like a, yeah, a, lo- a logical thing for banks to do, but yet you know, even
1: going through an app, it's still a clunky experience for a lot of banks. Look, I think the challenge is, and I, I don't know that there's poor yeah. intention by banks, but the reality is that they've built legacy on top of legacy on top of legacy on top of legacy um, they really haven't rethought the design uh, all the processes in actual fact you know what you get in most mobile banking apps is just a subset of what you get in internet banking and internet banking is a subset of what you get in a branch and the branch is a subset of you know what you can do when you you, you finally get into the, deep into the system so we've had the huge advantage of starting from day one with a clean piece of paper and deciding what we want to do, and so we've kept it very simple, very clear. You know, we've had user experience, user designers right from day one. Uh, we've done user testing from day one, and so it just gives us a huge advantage in terms of making it really simple and really clear.
2: Australia has four major banks, um, you know, CBA, NAB, uh, Westpac, and ANZ, um, and you've mentioned that they're they're built on these incredibly old legacy systems. Uh, which presents a challenge for them to innovate and to create new technology. Um, we've seen people like CBA, for example, invest in new companies like Klarna to try and get ahead of the curve. Do you think that's where banking is heading in Australia? Do you think the big banks are going to be more reliant or uh, need to partner with people like yourselves to be able to innovate going forward?
1: It's, look, it's hard for me to comment on, on, on what the big, big banks should do. I mean, I think they've got you know, they've got smart people, they've got, capable people. Uh, I think the challenge for them is that, you know, they also have an enormous amount of distractions. They have the distraction of legacy technology, which is a hard one to solve. They've got the distraction of remediation from the Royal Commission. Um, they've got the distraction of, you know, legacy backbooks books that are, are holding up their profitability, but not doing the right thing by customers. And so it, it, it's actually really quite difficult and complex for them to, uh, to compete and to, and to change. Whereas for us, you know, we are a digitally native team top to bottom. So we don't have, you know, IT departments or innovation hubs because that is what the bank is in tot- in totality. We only employ digitally natives. If you can't use the tools that we use to run the bank, we're not going to print it any out for you. We're not going to do a separate process for you. Um, so we are, we are very differently structurally. And as a result of that, we do things quite differently. And if you take, for example, the way we deliver features in the app, you know, we've been releasing the app on average fortnightly for a whole year. Every fortnight, new app release, feature change, benefit change. You know that that's just an incredible pace that you couldn't imagine a a large bank doing. Absolutely,
2: and I think one of the hesitancies people still have about banking with a new bank is the the lack of a bricks and mortar element to it. Uh, But this is what you said in 2019. Uh, This has been an incredibly thorough process and we've had every element of our business Stress tested to confirm that we are as robust secure and safe as any bricks and mortar bank How does a neobank like 86400 achieve that security like a bricks and mortar bank?
1: Well, I think what I was referring to there is obviously the the licensing process. So uh, in Australia, there is only one banking license. Uh, If you get a full banking license, exactly the same license, whether you're a big four bank or whether you're 86, 400. So we went through the same process that uh, any bank would go through, and now we're under the same supervision uh, as any bank uh, would be under. So it's a very, very thorough process, and that's, that's appropriate because we are looking after people's money um, we've used a lot of technology to meet the requirements, as you'd expect, because we're a very small team. We're only just over 100, uh, 100 people. Um, so we use a lot of smart technology and we're very focused on efficiency, but we are the same uh, as a big four bank in terms of uh, supervision. One of the advantages of being uh, mobile led, uh, and we don't have internet banking and you know, we don't have branch banking, it means we can be a lot more secure. Um, we've got you know, without going into the, obviously the details for obvious reasons. Um, you know, we have, for example, device binding. So uh, when, when someone's banking, we're not just looking for uh, a pass, password and a passcode. In fact, we don't have uh, passcodes. Um, you basically have a pin to go into your app, um, but we, have, we make sure it's you using the app. Uh, we make sure the app is on your phone. We make sure your phone is where it, uh, where it should be. And so in many ways, we're actually more secure Um, than some of the traditional banking techniques out there.
2: Do you think that's been a barrier to date for adoption of neobanks? Or are you seeing customer behavior change in recent years to be more open uh, and accepting of that?
1: We've already seen a huge shift uh, because, you know, people used to think of uh, branch banking as being banking and uh, this as being remote banking. You know, phone banking is remote banking. The reality is the other way around. You know, most people I would talk to say, you know, the only remote thing out there is a branch because I got to get in my car and I got to drive there. I got to find it. It's got to be open in a certain hours. Uh, I got to queue up, uh, and then they'll probably point me to a, a, a sort of a dumb screen to play on. Anyway, so um, mobiles, you know, we run our lives on them. We, we're everywhere with our mobile phone. We already run our calendars, our you know, our socials, all that sort of stuff. So it just makes sense that you do everything. On your phone and that's what our customers are doing that was already happening you know there's already sort of eight million australians who predominantly bank on their phone right now um, covid-19 has only increased that and and people not only do they want to do their daily banking on their phone they want to do everything else you know we are the only uh, new bank in australia to launch a home loan product that home loan is hundred percent digital You know, we don't need you to go to a branch to do ID. We don't need you to go to the post office. We don't need you to meet a courier on the corner to have your photo taken. It's all done in your house with your phone. We can ID you. Uh, We can do the mortgage assessment. We can give you your mortgage documents. You can sign them digitally. Um, And it's really shown the importance of having an end-to-end digital process for things like mortgages.
2: And that's a great segue to my next question. Uh, There have been two really major
1: events in the
2: last couple of years that have really shake up the banking industry. And one of them, uh, as you mentioned, is COVID-19. What do you think are some of the long-term effects of COVID-19 on the industry? You've touched a bit, a bit about it earlier, but do you, do you think there are any other trends going
1: forward into the future? Look, I think the uh, openness of people using digital um, is going to accelerate. There is no doubt about that. I think it's just shown what's possible. Um, and you know, before COVID-19, you know, we would have had all people in the world saying, Here's all the risks of having your teams working from home. And here we are, you know, 86, 400, you know, we made the decision at 12 o'clock and by two o'clock, we had the entire bank working from home. We could do that because we're all cloud-based. We've got no you know, infrastructure in the office uh, and we haven't gone back. You know, effectively, we've had, um, you know, hundred people running a bank with zero customer impact uh, for all that time. And I think this has really challenged people to think about, how you work and how you're structured and, and what you can do. It's certainly, you know, I would have considered myself someone who's very open to remote working prior to COVID-19. But what it made me realize is actually, I wasn't really as open as I thought I was. Uh, and now I'm much more open to the idea of, you know, we're having this this interview, we're doing this uh, interview on the on the screen right now. It's It, it, it works. So um, there are some negatives of course, you know, we do miss, you know, some ideation sessions and creative sessions, and when you're kind of bouncing stuff off. But we're doing incredibly well uh, in a digital environment, so it really shows what's possible. The second event that's really had a big impact in
2: the banking industry is obviously the Royal Commission. Uh, What do you think are the effects of the Royal Commission on the industry, and how does that affect uh, a digital only bank
1: like yourself? Yeah, look I think the Royal Commission has certainly I mean it's shone a spotlight on some really poor behavior uh, in banking there's no mm-hmm. doubt about that but I actually don't think it's had as big a customer impact as what people think uh, you know you and I are acutely aware of it because we're you know we're involved in the industry and we're close to the industry and so we we, we saw it play out and you know quite frankly I was absolutely horrified by some of the things that um, that came out from it um, but I don't know that consumers are that that close to it, you know, it just kind of confirmed to them that they probably weren't getting a great deal at their, their current big bank and they probably should look around. They probably didn't go a lot deeper than that. And so it's, it is a tailwind, but, you know, we had done all our work and our research well before the Royal Commission. We'd started building our product before the Royal Commission, and I don't think the Royal Commission changed what we were doing. Um, it just gave us a bit of a, a tailwind in terms of, you know, getting people thinking about different alternatives. The real change, the real positive from the Royal Commission uh, will be the fact that there are there is now competition. There are people like ourselves trying to do things different, um, trying to create a different environment, trying to create a different experience.
2: That's great. I want to talk now about the nuts and bolts of actually running the company right now. Uh, so uh, the first topic on my mind is the team. And your your startup has actually a, a vast amount of experience uh, from day one, I think one of your your founding team members was uh, the co-founder of Metro Bank in the UK, Anthony Thom- Thompson. With all this skill and ability, was there anything missing that you needed to address within your team?
1: That's a that's a great question. Uh, I think on I think we had the the right team from the start. I mean, very early in the very early days, we had uh, more temporary staff. We had a number of. Uh, people that came in to sort of help with the business case and kind of help with the early thinking. Um, And a number of those changed and swapped out uh, as we went forward, but that's quite natural. I think one of the really great decisions we made and, and one of the huge advantages that we've had over others is that 86400 was a bank that was built by technologists. The the original business case and the design before we came up with a brand name before we came up with a marketing strategy before we came up with customer acquisition and viral loops and all that all the work that was done on was on the technology and and the number one the first employee was actually brian parker our chief technology office officer uh cio sorry he he was the first one Uh, and so you know most of the work that was done was technology on the first instance uh and all our time and resources went into technology resources. Um, so that, that gave us a big advantage in terms of starting off really strongly uh, with a really good technology platform, really good understanding. And those technologists had banking experience as well, which is really important. Um, and that's a big, been a big advantage for us. So we actually built the bank before we had a license. So um, w- we didn't get a license and then go off and build the bank. We had a bank ready to go and we were waiting for a license. As soon as we got a license, it was bang, we were, we were up and running. Um, so that was a big difference. Um, look, gaps, uh, I don't know, Is there anyone, has anyone ever started a, a bank or a business who, who didn't need more people or more money uh, or more time? I don't think so, but no, I think we, we were really happy with uh, the original team, uh, many of whom are still with us, and uh, obviously the support of Cusco has been really important to us. Um, We've hired people who are really passionate about changing banking, you know, really keen to get those sleeves rolled up and and get into it. And I think that's the biggest difference from big corporates is that, you know, in our team, people actually have to do an incredible amount of variety of things in a day. And when they want to do something new, if they're looking for an expert, it's it's probably them they just haven't realized they're the expert yet they've got to go and learn something read something look something up call on a favor from a friend you know find out the nuts and bolts of it um but as a result you know most of our team can explain top to bottom how our bank works at at, at a level of detail you just would not find in in any other established institution that's incredible you made a comment that caught uh
2: my my ear uh, earlier which is that you are a technologist-led bank. What's the difference between a technologist-led bank and a banker-led bank? Uh, and maybe could you give some practical and tangible examples of different decisions you'd make um, based on one philosophy of building a bank over the other?
1: Yeah look I had a conversation with a, a colleague the other day about uh, a lot of companies have you know innovation hubs and technology hubs and and that's going to solve the world and, and we kind of have a little laugh about that you know, I know it's hard for big companies but Anyone who has a technology hub or an innovation hub, it kind of suggests that the rest of the organization is not innovative. And so we'll never have one because we we have to be innovative top to bottom. So the the first thing that we do is we make sure that whether it's the board or whether it's the CEO or the exec, that we're using the same tools. Um, So, um, you know, we use the Alaskan toolkit, you know, great company, great resources. So Uh, whether it's jira or whether it's slack or um, you know any of those um, kind of collaboration tools everyone uses them that's how we do business we don't just you know have a different system or different process for boards for our product roadmap for example um, we publish that publicly it's on trello uh, and we use trello internally as well that's 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 how we run our uh, our product roadmap everyone has visibility to it Uh, our customer feedback um, our net promoter score is, there's a Slack channel. Everyone can see it as it comes in live. Um, so it's, a, it's a, just a very different way of, uh, of running it. But probably the best example is just the ratio of teams. So you know, we are a team of just over 100 people. Uh, roughly half of the people are technologists, engineers, developers, uh, UX, UI, you know, projects. Uh, that's a ratio you wouldn't find at any other bank <laughs> anywhere. Wow. In the bank. Yeah. It's half the team uh, and yeah, that's, that's as it should be. That's, that's why we can deliver features so quickly. That's why we can uh, push out app releases every fortnight.
2: And as you continue to scale and grow, do you think that the ratio is going to hold constant
1: or are you going to have to shake things up a bit? Uh, like I think it will. And the reason is that we are very, very efficient. So we have an absolute laser focus on doing things in a way that's scalable. Um, so when you when you sign up um, you know anyone listening on this this podcast you know signs up in half an hour's time they download the app two minutes they become a customer um, they can provision their apple pay straight away they can make payments straight away their account's set up they've got a bsb they've got an account number a physical card's been ordered and it's on the mail on the way to them in the mail now in that example there, there's no people being involved there are zero people involved so whether we put on 100 customers in a day, or whether we do 2,000 in a day, it makes no difference to our cost structure and it makes no difference to our number of people. So we will stay very efficient. Uh, You know, we won't be growing in numbers proportionately to customers. It'll be a lot less than that. Uh, And I think, you know, we are really positioned to continue to uh, supplement the the technology resources, Uh, but we don't intend to be a a massive team. Uh, We tend to be very, very efficient team using the best technology.
2: That's incredible. Uh, I want to touch next on growth of uh, your company and, and customer acquisition. So 86,400 hasn't actually disclosed how many customers you have, but you've mentioned that there are more than 225,000 accounts on your platform and you're on track to reach 500,000 by the end of the next financial year. Uh, is, that number st- is that growth trend still holding true right now or has COVID accelerated that trend?
1: Um, yeah, We're really happy with the, the growth targets. Um, you know, we, we firmly believe that if we create a great product, great service, and great experience, then everything else does take care of itself. And, and what we're seeing is that um, referrals is increasing. Um, so people who are talking about 86400. We also have a very sophisticated digital marketing uh, infrastructure uh, and platform so that we can get the message out to people. But we have seen uh, customers continue to grow um, throughout COVID-19. Uh, we've actually accelerated, not, uh, not decreased in terms of acquisition. Um, so you know, we, we're in a strong place. Um, there's a very, very large market out there for us. And we've created the right product and the right experience. And so you know, just need more people to know who we are and what we do.
2: And what's your main strategy for customer acquisition or, and getting the word out? Because I've been spending more time at home because of COVID, and every time I turn on YouTube or the TV, there's a banking app that kind of pops out at me. Uh, so, what's your strategy to, to get customers on board your platform?
1: Well, look, I think the first thing we, we focus really heavily on is, uh, is customer advocacy. So, uh, and we measure that a number of ways. Obviously, app ratings is really important to us. And after only a year, you know, we're one of the highest rated uh, apps in both. Um, google play and in the app store Uh, we look at nps net promoter score Uh, we use a tool called ask nicely to go out to our customers uh, regularly Um, it's one of my rituals i do every single day of the week um, seven days a week every day of the year as i I check the the ask nicely results and and, and read them they 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 can be incredibly uplifting and they can be absolutely you know heart-wrenching at times as well when you don't get things right Um, so that's something we we take very seriously um, and, and the reason why we focus on that so heavily is one, we want to be proud of what we do. We, we want to create a really different experience. But we know that for us to scale like we want to, uh, we need our customers talking to other customers or other potential customers. And that's what's happening. So we do rely heavily on, on referrals. Uh, we've got a really cool referral uh, program. So, literally, you have a referral code in the app, you can share that with people. Uh, actually, this month is, uh, we've just kicked off today. Uh, $20 referral for uh, anyone who signs up and $20 for the person who signs them up. So it's a really nice incentive as well. Um, so referrals is really important. Uh, but then of course, we, you know, we work hard on, on digital channels as well. We want you to see the messages uh, for A6400. We don't do kind of branding. You know, we, we're not into branding kind of campaigns. You know, it's very benefit-led. So we'll, we'll talk about our connected accounts. We'll talk about our uh, energy switch product. We'll talk about our interest rates. We'll talk about uh, how we predict your upcoming bills. They're the sort of messages you'd expect to see from 86400.
2: Is there any particular message that particularly stands out to you for that uh, Ask Nicely platform?
1: Um, look, people are in- incredibly um, generous with their feedback. And so, um, you know, one of our team always responds to people when they, when they provide feedback. Uh, and usually that means that they'll provide more feedback. Um, and so, it, you know, it might be simple to say, look, thanks for the feedback. Um, you know, here's the answer to your question. And by the way, have you got any other thoughts on this? And people are really kind of generous with their time and generous with their feedback. And so that, that's, really, that's really helpful. Um, very early on in the process, we didn't have BPAY. Uh, our research suggested that younger people are not using BPAY. Uh, we didn't prioritise BPAY. Uh, but the feedback came really strongly in the first kind of eight weeks of operation that BPAY was really important. Uh, we reprioritized uh, and we launched it about six weeks later. So uh, that was, you know, that was an example where the, the feedback came up and we, um, we used it really quickly.
2: So I just want to end on you, actually. What's it like for yourself being the CEO of a fast-growing uh, fintech? Uh,
1: great Big question. Uh, I think the shortest answer would be, I can't think of another job that I would want to do at this point in time. Uh, it's it's thoroughly enjoyable. It's incredibly rewarding. You know, I'm very fortunate to have put together a really strong, capable, uh, and a team that I love working with, and that makes a massive difference. And you know, we are changing banking and. There's very few people in this world who get the opportunity to build a brand new bank from scratch. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity and yeah, really enjoying it. It's, it's full on. Uh, it can be very stressful, of course, uh, but couldn't think about doing anything else. And
2: uh, do you have a couple pieces of advice for the listeners out here who uh, are either young CEOs or who are thinking of starting on their journey, given that you've got such an extensive leadership
1: background? Look, I'll come back to, I think, something I mentioned at the start. You know, my, my advice is just do a really, really good job of whatever job you're doing at the moment. Find a way to enjoy it. Find a way to make it exciting uh, and excel at it because people always notice people who are doing really, really well, really well. I think some people spend too much time trying to chase an opportunity and not focusing on work. Great work does get recognised. Um, do a really, really good job uh, and enjoy it.